Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the network. Today, I'll talk to Trent University professor David Shannon about his new co-edited volume, The New Pan-Americanism and the Structuring of Inter-American Relations, just published by Routledge. This collection of articles on the history of Pan-Americanism, an elusive late 19th and early 20th century movement that attempted to foster closer relations among the nations of the Western Hemisphere, is a follow-up to an earlier volume that Shannon edited titled Beyond the Ideal, published in 2000. In the two decades since, a lot has changed in the study of Pan-Americanism. In this new edited collection, Shannon and his co-editor Juan Pablo Scarfi give readers a sample of some of the new directions the scholarship has taken. The book's eight chapters reorient our understanding of Pan-Americanism and U.S.-Latin American relations more broadly to include new historical actors and ways of understanding U.S. power in the region. While previous work on Pan-Americanism tended to present U.S. power as absolute, this volume shows us the many ways that Latin American nations used the language of Pan-Americanism to challenge imperial power and advance their own national interests. But in doing so, it avoids merely reducing this complicated history to a story of resistance or agency. Instead, the volume's chapters parse the individual and collective motivations that drove Latin American policymakers, scholars, architects, and many others to engage with a framework that had for years been linked with U.S. imperialism. David, welcome to the show. Stephen, thank you very much for having me on, and you do great work. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Thank you. I'd like to just begin by asking you how you came to the study of, of Pan-Americanism. And in doing so, can you just tell us a bit about uh, your, your training as a historian and why this topic has, has appealed to you? Sure. Uh, so I did a PhD at the University of Connecticut, and I did it under the supervision of uh, Professor Thomas G. Patterson, who was a premier revisionist historian of U.S. foreign relations uh, and Uh, I got interested in Pan-Americanism through my work on U.S.-Argentine relations and through the discovery of enormous uh, quantities of documents on this topic in the National Archives of the United States, much of it commercial and much of it still untouched. Um, I also, at one point, thought that I would like to do write a comprehensive history of Pan-Americanism. And I even dove into it. I did research at the Organization of American States Archive, which was Mm. a fascinating experience in and of itself. 
And I really decided at that point that doing that history was not for me. That was going to take me a lifetime. Uh, Pan-Americanism is hard. Uh, mm. it, for starters, unlike Pan-Africanism, it's not a unified set of ideas around an ideological or political cause. As in the case of Pan-Africanism, decolonization, for example, and all of what that means. Uh, so um, in some way, I, I ended up editing a book that came out 22 years ago on uh, Pan-Americanism called Beyond the Ideal. And that was part of, that was I, so a number of projects came out of that idea of doing the comprehensive history that never came about. Hmm. The way I came to this book was really with uh, my fantastic co-editor and friend, Juan Pablo Ecarfi. And it came about because uh, 20 years or so after uh, that book, there had been very significant criticisms of that book, Beyond the Ideal, from the year 2000. And you hit the nail on the head in your introduction. Hmm. Uh, there were a lot of people unhappy with the book's emphasis on imperialism in the view of some to the exclusion of Latin American agency. And really in conversation with Juan Pablo and with uh, some others, we decided it was time to go at this again. Yeah, well, that's a really fascinating backstory. And, and you know, on that topic, I'm, I'm wondering what were some of the larger challenges in putting together this particular edited volume? You have experience with several edited volumes, um, but for this particular one on Pan-Americanism, beyond the kind of normal ones of, you know, kind of coherence, the quality of the individual chapters, what, what was the hardest uh, here? Is trying to, was it trying to strike kind of the right balance on the, this question of, uh, of U.S. power and imperialism or... Well, um, like all your questions, that's a great question. Um, in some way, the hardest problem is the one I mentioned, but that made it the easiest. And the hardest part of it was to try, uh, was whether or not we would do something comprehensive. And that mm. quickly became impossible. Uh, as you know, and as your listeners will know, uh, Book publishers don't want 800-page volumes mm -hmm. anymore. That that era at Stanford University Press and elsewhere is over. Mm -hmm. uh, and we knew that we could not cover all the major areas, which might have included a history of the Pan-American Games, for example, mm -hmm. a very important part of Pan-Americanism, the work of the Pan-American Health Organization, also not included. So once we got our heads around uh, that question that we simply weren't going to try to do everything, uh, it actually became much easier because we decided we would try to select um, some of, not all, uh, but some of the best people working in the field. And in particular, we were interested uh, in some of those who uh, might have thought critically about that first volume that I did uh, 22 years ago. And that's that was the last edited volume on Pan-Americanism. Mm -hmm. So we were really keen on uh, getting that very viewpoint in there. And then it really became very straightforward because uh, we were very quickly able to win commitments from an outstanding set of uh, scholars um, 
almost all of whom are a generation or so younger than me, if not in age, then certainly in terms of when they uh, uh, came to their PhDs. And um, that makes this, I think, extremely interesting. Uh, So uh, I would say that was probably the toughest part and the easiest part. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, thinking about your your earlier edited volume, Beyond the Ideal, which is a volume I encountered when I was first, you know, studying Pan-Americanism, and it was incredibly helpful in just showing the how diverse Pan-Americanism was, but it's been fascinating to watch in the past decade or so, I guess, just how much the work on, on Pan-Americanism has flourished, how much interest there is in totally different uh, new domains uh, of study, such as uh, intellectual cooperation, I think has been a domain that's that's kind of flourishing a lot. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that in a moment. But, but first, for listeners who are unfamiliar with this topic more generally, uh, like if you can just give us a kind of capsule sort of history of Pan-Americanism, when it started, why it emerged. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about the concept itself and some of the conceptual challenges, because I think a lot of what your volume does in the introduction, especially, is trying to wrestle with this question of what was Pan-Americanism and trying to not simply just define it, but kind of map its different um, uh, features and how it changed over time. So if you could just kind of give our listeners who are less familiar with this history, a little overview of of Pan-Americanism. Sure. Uh, I'm going to start by saying I may or may not be the person to ask. I I have an encyclopedia definition uh, (laughs) that people can find on my academia site, and lots of people go to that. But I'm suspicious of it myself because I really do think that it's an amorphous concept. And Mm -hmm. maybe to start with, it's an idea or set of ideas that I do believe have been used by diplomats, politicians, journalists, and others to advance their own views of what hemispheric relations should be, uh, or even an agenda toward trying to bring that about. And maybe that's the most basic way to think about it. Mm -hmm. Some people see the origins of Pan-Americanism in Simón Bolívar and other independence-era leaders who um, thought about a unified hemisphere, perhaps minus the United States. And certainly Bolivar had that idea of uh, a kind of United States of South America along the original lines of what the United States was supposed to be as far as a union of independent or semi-independent states. Often others see the origins of this in the lead up to and the first Pan-American conference uh, in 1889-90. And here's where the imperialism argument kicks in, because Mm. I would still argue that there was a great degree of cynicism on the part of American leaders who organized that conference and in many ways stewarded it. They were looking at the... Uh, period of origins or early U.S. empire, they were looking to order the hemisphere uh, politically, ideologically, economically, uh, and uh, judicially. Uh, They were concerned about customs houses and the need for military intervention, and they hoped to eliminate those sorts of problems. So I would say that it was certainly, in that respect, an element of informal empire. 
What we then see into the early 20th century is continued pressure by the United States. But as uh, Juan Pablo Ecarfi and others have shown in works on judicial aspects of Pan-Americanism and others, Latin Americans begin to um, pressure the system. The Pan-American Union, which was based in uh, Washington, which really becomes the organization of American states in the post-war period, to try to influence what Pan-Americanism meant and to influence it in favor of uh, Latin American governments, political parties, actors. And so our colleague Teresa Davis has a wonderful mm. chapter in the book on economists in the 1920s into the 1930s, where in many ways they're thinking in the way that the Americans did in the late 19th century about an economic union only now it would be minus the United States and for the explicit benefit of Latin American actors. The last thing that I would say, and I deal with this in my own chapter in the book, is that with the Second World War and the early Cold War, there's an again an, a new effort led by the United States to militarize the Pan-American Union. So an inter-American defense board is created. Um, the uh, 1948 Inter-American uh, Treaty of Reciprocity is meant by American actors to further a military agenda to counter the power of the Soviet Union as the Americans saw it. And that attempt in the end failed. And I deal with that mm -hmm. in my chapter. It fails in the 1960s, which I argue leads into the militarization of Latin American governments and societies. Uh, but then by that point, Pan-Americanism has broken off yet again. So if we saw it breaking into different elements in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, Teresa Davis, again, for example, mm -hmm. as far as economists, uh, by the middle to late Cold War period, it had broken off into lots of elements. And Juan Pablo Ecarfi's chapter deals with this in human rights. So the creation of the Inter-American Human Rights Court and Commission uh, really begin to function somewhat independently, as does the Pan-American Health Organization. So they are arms of Pan-Americanism, but entirely detached bureaucratically and ideologically from the organization of American states. And uh, I want to reemphasize that that wasn't a very good definition. It was kind of a rambling run through, but I'm not sure there's a better definition of what Pan-Americanism no, is. No, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that was an excellent overview. And anyway, I think it, it really just shows that it is very, it is a very difficult concept to define. But Reading this edited volume, if we just kind of look, if you just look at the table of contents, if you start there, what you see is that Pan Americanism was an incredibly broad kind of concept or movement idea, however we want to d define it. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, this volume I think has opened up the kind of definition of Pan Americanism to an extent, or that's the effect after reading it. We see that, you know, it was not just about diplomacy; it was about all of the things you mentioned extended to many other domains. It was also kind of part of the, shall we say, the lived experience of some Americans' lives, uh, the chapter on on kind of how everyday people interacted with Pan-Americanism. I'm forgetting the uh, the author of that chapter. but uh, Lisa Ubelacher. Yes. Um, I think that chapter is really good at grounding it um, in kind of 
everyday life, um, which I think some uh, previous work has has not necessarily done. But uh, my question here, though, is to, to sort of to play a devil's advocate a bit. What happens to the concept of Pan Americanism when we make it when it becomes this capacious? Um, what does this volume kind of do to the concept? To what extent uh, does Pan Americanism just mean? Uh, U.S. Latin American relations during the 20th century. What utility is there in in the the concept of Pan Americanism? Labeling it that, at least for historians, would you say? Well, um, again, I think your question hits the nail on the head, and it makes me squirm a little bit, as as good <laughs> questions should in this situation. But but I think, look, um, you know, I uh, in some way I'm flattered that colleagues came to criticize my earlier book. I think there's no greater homage than people mm-hmm, coming along mm-hmm. after and saying, okay, look, we, we used your book. We got this out of it, but you don't know what you're talking about. And now we have to th- rethink things. So I, that I take that as something very important. Although um, what I would say goes to your comment. I mean, you may or may not agree with this, but I wouldn't want the pendulum to swing too far. So I think that Latin American agency is there. I don't think that U.S. imperialism ever really disappears. I think that um, imperialism doesn't function as a monolith. I'm not saying anything that anybody listening won't know. And the intensity of it and the intensity of how policymakers try to apply it comes and goes. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we know that in the 1930s, good neighbor policy uh, came about in part because the United States was no longer in a position to exercise the kind of military and commercial and financial authority that it did mm-hmm. in the 1910s and 1920s. Maybe it wasn't entirely cynical, but uh, certainly the good neighbor uh, comes along. And then in the Second World War, when the U.S. is looking for an opportunity to engage Latin American governments on the side of the allies, there's an interest in policymakers stepping back from more overt Mm -hmm. kinds of imperialism. And to go at your question, it's in those moments that Pan-Americanism evolves or devolves into something much more amorphous. And we were talking about Lisa Ubelacher's chapter. She talks about brief periods where there is popular interest in the topic in both the United States and in Argentina for different reasons. Mm -hmm. But we'll note that in the United States, it comes and goes. Uh, So the example she gives is of a series of festivals that Mm -hmm. are inspired in part by the idea of the good neighbor But once the Cold War hits, Pan-Americanism dissipates as a kind of a popular ideal. Pan-Americanism has been a theme of world fairs, for example, um, and there are a couple of excellent books on that topic. There was a World Fair in Texas Mm. that's been written about. Uh, But again, whether Americans were really thinking about this, whether, whether Latin Americans were thinking about it, I'm not certain at all. So I think that your um, questioning of all of this is very good. And I would go back to saying that, in my view, Pan-Americanism matters most. Maybe it really only matters in moments when it's being applied. So Mm -hmm. however it's being applied by uh, commerce department officials 
in Washington in 1921 or uh, Argentines celebrating in a festival in the 1940s, there is something around that issue as far as international domestic politics are concerned and how they impact uh, popular ideologies. And I would say that's still the case. Um, And uh, again, to selfishly return to to my chapter where I talk about an effort by an Argentine diplomat and uh, an Argentine chief of staff of the armed forces to try to militarize it and actually have a pan-american military force to combat uh leftist subversion their term uh in the late 1960s it's invoked in a way that was not imagined in the 1930s or 1920s so yes pan-americanism uh much more again than pan-africanism in the 20th century is shaped and reshaped by um the actors who find it useful to do so uh, in the moment. Yeah, well, I, I thank you for for that response. I mean, that's really helpful. I think that you know something that at least comes across to me is that in each era, something that you certainly see is that Pan Americanism is kind of a rhetorical strategy or a vocabulary that, of course, changes over time, but that many policymakers and other historical actors kind of fall back on. It is in my own research. I just see that coming up again and again. These kind of pan-American rhetorical strategies, which is not to say that it was merely a rhetorical strategy, but just that—that's one way I think of of tracking it. Is just looking at that kind of those same terms used over and over again throughout uh, uh, various periods. Uh, well, so that yeah. I apologize. I I think I interrupted you, but no, no, no. I, I would go one step further, and this is very important to think about. You know, there's actually been quite a lot written about feminism and Pan-Americanism beginning Mm -hmm. in the late 1910s. In the 1920s, there were women who became involved in the Pan-American movement expressing first wave feminist ideas. uh, And this was very significant. They clashed with men. Okay, so that's very interesting. But... um, Who's left out of all of this? I mean, we talk about Latin American agency. Indigenous Mm -hmm. uh, peoples from throughout the hemisphere couldn't care less and never could about Pan-Americanism. You know, if we think about uh, indigenista movements in Peru and elsewhere in Bolivia, you know, Mm -hmm. my goodness, if we think about changes in Bolivia and Peru and Ecuador in the past 40 years, I doubt the word Pan-Americanism or its Spanish equivalent ever came up in the campo. This is um, Mm. a terminology that is very much affected by race uh, and class. Um, In addition, um, there are plenty of Afro-Latin American political movements defined as such in one way or another in Brazil and elsewhere in Colombia. Again, these movements, to my knowledge, have never expressed an interest in Pan-Americanism, though, like indigenista movements, uh, there is certainly an interest in transnational Mm -hmm. cooperation among indigenous peoples, among peoples of color, among between states where these issues are front and center. This has never been uh, a problem front and center. 
The other thing that I would add, and um, you know, one of the things that I found when I did research uh, over a long period at the Organization of American States, I met employees um, mm-hmm. of all races uh, and origins in the Americas at that time. And it's absolutely fair to say, and I'm not the only one who would say so, that people who considered themselves of African descent from the Caribbean felt discriminated against in the organization of American states hierarchy. To put it more bluntly, they felt over racism on the part of diplomats from my country, Canada, from the United States and from throughout Latin America. And I think that that's also something very significant and it does not appear in the book. And in some way, maybe the chapter that should have been in there was a, a, a kind of a subversive chapter on transnationalism as non-Pan-Americanism or anti-Pan-Americanism. Uh, I wouldn't quite put it that way. It's not so much anti-Pan-Americanism because I think Pan-Americanism simply hasn't been on the radar of right. most Latin Americans. Right. I mean, I think what, what you're what you're saying, I mean, suggests the the asymmetries right within Pan-Americanism in terms of not just kind of in, in the diplomatic sense, but the kind of the kind of racial hierarchy that's reproduced um, in in Pan-American you know affairs, uh, which is a, a really f- fascinating uh, part of it. But what what you were saying also made me think of alternative sort of transnational movements in Latin America during the, that. The 20th century. So I'm thinking of the university reform movement and some other attempts to create alternative types of transnational solidarity between Latin American peoples, non-US kind of uh, movements or organizations that attempted to bring Latin American uh, nations together. So that perhaps that would be one way of of kind of of looking at it. If if you know this hypothetical chapter, uh, you know that's not in the edited volume, might look at something like the university reform movement, perhaps. But even there, I would say certainly some of these movements. Another example is a uh, revolutionary Cuba-inspired mm-hmm. effort, uh, and there it was deliberately to counter the influence of the Washington-based Organization of American States, which had expelled Cuba, the the Organization of American Mm -hmm. States, uh, as the inheritor of what the Pan-American Union was uh, institutionally. But again, I, you know, in Cuba, we know that African Cubans have long complained about racism within uh, that social and political hierarchy. Uh, I'm not sure how many of these reform movements were, in fact, uh, led by um, indigenous people or African Latin Americans, um, including, you know, what uh, Aya de la Torre uh, introduced Mm -hmm. as far as indigenismo in Peru and so on. Um, I'm much more interested in the same sorts of movements as, for example, in Colombia, African Colombian political movements that promoted and achieved uh, all sorts of social and political change, uh, including a required number of seats in Congress for Afro-Colombians and so on. Those are the people I think who've thought transnationally, but completely outside of the boundaries of Pan-Americanism. Another example is the Chiapas uprising in Mexico 30 years ago, where there was a, a, a very strong effort to 
uh, incorporate and involve First Peoples from throughout the Americas, including Canada and the United States. And again, Pan-Americanism was way over there. It was not relevant to uh, mm-hmm. what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, moving on a, a little bit to the the individual chapters themselves. Um, well, one thing that that really stood out to me about this edited volume that I think distinguishes it uh, from a lot of other edited volumes I've read is the way in which each of the chapters are in, directly in conversation with each other. Um, in many of the chapters, the the authors directly reference a previous chapter, a chapter later in the volume, and engage with some of the arguments. One of those arguments that's kind of central to the entire edited volume is trying to think about questions of power um, and trying to understand the appeal of Pan-Americanism, uh, a deeply asymmetrical kind of system as we were talking about. Why did Latin American nations want to engage with it? And this question, I think the, the contributors in the volume try to answer this question through looking at different domains of, of, uh, of cooperation uh, within Pan-Americanism. And one, one that stood out to me and that's especially interesting, uh, I think, is intellectual cooperation. Uh, Juliette Dumont has a chapter that partially looks at the relationship between the Pan-American Union and uh, the League of Nations, looking at intellect, the intellectual cooperation efforts of those two organizations and some of the tensions uh, that emerged. Um, and Mark Peterson has a chapter on on architecture and architects and looking at that history. So these are domains of Pan-Americanism that are in a lot of ways outside the traditional Pan-American conference system that we're used to. Um, they bring together a lot of uh, non-governmental organizations, universities, uh, individual uh, institutions, and things like that. I, I'm wondering, from your perspective, what what does this volume sort of teach us about the importance of intellectual um, cooperation uh, for the history of uh, Pan-Americanism? What does it add to our understanding by studying these less you know uh, less traditional? Uh, traditionally studied forms of of cooperation. So you've asked a big question there at the end, and and I'll go back again to that um, healthy tension between some of the approaches of these authors and the volume that um, Mm -hmm. I edited 20 years ago. And again, Mm -hmm. it's not that that volume is so important. It's just that that was the only one. (laughs) So it sort of sits on the shelf. Um, (laughs) and, And I think that something I said I would say is relevant here, which is one doesn't want, I would say, the pendulum swinging too far either way. I would say U.S. imperialism is a constant and Latin American agency is important and not to be ignored. And in many uh, cases, as you suggest, these chapters show uh, achieves. And I would say that um, to answer your question, for each of these chapters, what we see is Latin American professionals working at a very high level in the early and mid 20th century. So architects in the case of, uh, uh, among others, in the case of a chapter by the historian uh, Mark Peterson, mm-hmm. and medical doctors in the case of a chapter by Juliette Dumont. Uh, and in both cases, what we see is professionals from Latin America um, pushing back against the way that the United States uh, government officials and 
private sector actors tried to control the movement from Washington and from the United States. So uh, there was a Pan-American Institute of Geography set up. There was a Pan-American Historical Institute set up. Mm -hmm. There were other institutes. uh, There was one for archaeology. They were set up to be run and directed from the United States. And I would say that the answer to your question is that in each of these cases, in these chapters, and again, economists in the case of Teresa Mm -hmm. Davis, we have people in many ways playing by the rules of international cooperation that are laid out by the great powers in the late 19th century, early 20th century. So medical doctors who want to achieve by standards uh, set in Great Britain, France, the United States, and so on. They want to be the best they can be, and their science is founded on not on traditional indigenous medicine from uh, the tropical rainforest, but they want the best based on what's going on in Baltimore, in Birmingham, Mm -hmm. and in Paris. Uh, What they're doing through Pan-Americanism is pushing into the room and taking a seat at the table, the architects as well, and demanding that as strong professionals, they be recognized as such and that they assume leadership positions. And uh, they achieve that. And I think that they achieve that not because the United States is less interested in dominating, but rather because there's no reason for Americans to stop this from happening when high quality professionals are demanding not only a seat at the table, but leadership positions. Thank you for that. Um, we, we're kind of running out of time here, so I want to transition to some concluding questions. And I, I wouldn't normally ask a question about kind of uh, current events, but it, it seems it's very enticing to ask you about what you think the legacy of Pan-Americanism is and if this kind of spirit of Pan-Americanism or inter-Americanism still exists today. I'm thinking of the uh, summit of the the recent summit of the Americas, which ended up being a, a really a, a failure in many ways for the United States, um, and also thinking about some the left turn in Latin America, and so at, at this moment, I mean, what what do you see? Uh, yeah, what kind of legacies of the pan, the Pan Americanism that uh, your volume edited volume looks at? What kind of significance uh, do you think that that has today? Is the, is Pan Americanism completely uh, sort of dead in that sense, or does some of it still survive? Well, let's look at it first optimistically. I think that uh, some of it does survive, and uh, I think it's important to recognize that. However, it's not as a comprehensive system that it survives. And maybe that's perfectly fine. Maybe we Mm -hmm. don't need uh, some overarching element to uh, help run our lives. So it survives in uh, the human rights court and commission, bureaucracies that are independent of the organization of American states and function that way. But really, as Juan Pablo Ecarfi has demonstrated, um, they have been key to establishing, uh, as well as uh, as were their predecessors, uh, jurists uh, going back to the late 19th century, a body of international law that derives from ideas of international cooperation that came out of Pan-Americanism. I would signal also, and I've mentioned this before, the Pan-American Health Organization, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is really a marvel 
it really is something extremely important. And uh, I think that I'd like to see um, a historian uh, go back at the history of the Pan-American Union as it affected people on the ground. The Pan-American Union has saved huge numbers of lives uh, in vaccination programs, in the distributions of medicines. I know, for example, that during, uh, speaking of the present, during the pandemic, the Pan-American Health Organization, uh, high-ranking members, spread out through Latin America repeatedly doing their best to bring medication and vaccines uh, to where they were most needed, whether they were successful or not is another story. And I, I still think we don't know a lot about how the pandemic resonated in much of Latin America, but the Pan American Union, sorry, the Pan American Health Organization was front and center. So it has survived. I think that as an ideal, um, come to by Bolivar and by others, it did end. And um, I will selfishly reference my own chapter here, which I entitled The End of Pan-Americanism. And I do think that the beginning of the end was the effort to militarize it Mm -hmm. after the Second World War by the United States. And this was picked up in the 1960s and 70s by military officers in Argentina and in Brazil in particular, as well as elsewhere. They could not do that. The Argentines in particular wanted on the ground an organization of American states military force that would be staffed in each country by representatives, by militaries from that country. But it fell apart. They were fantasizing and thinking they would get agreement from all Latin American governments, particularly in the aftermath of the largely discredited Dominican invasion in 1966, which came under the umbrella of the Organization of American States. And to answer your your question more precisely, Hmm. sometimes when a decision is taken and an ideal and movement is moved in a particular direction, in this case, militarization, when it fails, there are consequences. Mm -hmm. And the consequences, in my view, is that we see those same military officers as military attaches, as representatives of their government internationally and nationally, giving up on their governments and increasingly deciding we're going to do this ourselves. So fighting what they viewed as leftist subversion, we see this taking place in the early 1970s into the mid-70s in South America, in Central America and elsewhere, with, I'm not saying the dictatorships on the right would not have happened in uh, Latin America in the 70s and 80s without this failure of Pan-Americanism, but I think it propels uh, military officers, along with other things, to abandon any faith they had in civilian rule as an antidote to what they saw as international communism. And it's the path that Pan-Americanism was put on that I think breaks it. And as you say, I don't think the Summit of the Americas commands the attention of Latin American governments in the way that it once did. And certainly, uh, you know, in the era of Evo Morales in Bolivia, um, Chavez in Venezuela, they had no interest whatsoever in Pan-Americanism. And frankly, they viewed it as something more sinister than any academic ever did as far as an agency of U.S. imperialism. 
Okay, well, I think we're we're pretty much out of time. I should have noted this earlier, but uh, Juan Pablo Scarfi, the other editor of volume, was not able to make it because of technical uh, difficulties. But um, uh, you know, his uh, I also thank him for for agreeing to do the interview, although he couldn't make it. And um, I did have a you know a last question. I don't know if you'll have time to answer it, but it was really just about what's next for the study of Pan Americanism. What do we need to what's what's something that an area of study that's been neglected within the field? If you have a few seconds to answer that, but uh, if not, we could we could wrap up. Well, I, I um, I'm going to repeat myself in sure, and I, and I want before I uh, yeah. uh, we stop, I want to get the chance to thank you again for having me on. This was extremely engaging and prompted me to Absolutely. think about a lot of things. And I want to say that uh, the the nicest thing about doing a co-edited volume, and I've done several, is to work with and learn from great. Uh, friends and scholars, and Juan Pablo Escarfi is one of those. And uh, really, I cherish the hours that he and I spent uh, hammering out our views uh, on Pan-Americanism mm. and much, much more than that. Uh, I would, I'd like to see a social history of mm. the Pan-American health organization. I'd mm. like to see a history that focused on what it changed or didn't change on the ground in Latin America. And I think that'd be a wonderful project for someone else to do. I'm My plate is full, but I think <laughs> that the material is there. There are tons of people to be interviewed. There are all sorts of records available, um, lots of published material. Someone who is science literate should take it on. Uh, but that's one thing. The other thing is, um, you know, a name comes to mind. There are several. We need an Alan Knight to tackle <laughs> Pan-Americanism uh, the way that Alan Knight tackled the Mexican Revolution. Yeah. Uh, and, and I do think there's a good book there. Um, as I say, it's not for me, but uh, I would love to see it. And someone who thought that they could take on a comprehensive history of Pan-Americanism and what it meant, I think it'd be a fantastic contribution to uh, our literature. Great. Well, David, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Stephen, thanks again. Take care.